This is the AAOS Advocacy Podcast, part of the Bone Beat Orthopedic Podcast channel. This series features important conversations on health policy issues, as well as advocacy efforts to advance access and quality to musculoskeletal health care. I'm your host, Doug Lundy, Chair of the AAOS Advocacy Council. Thanks for tuning in to this November episode of the podcast. We are talking about the issue of surprise medical billing, which rose to the national spotlight in 2019 and has dominated headlines over the last couple of years. We'll hear from two guests, an orthopedic surgeon who has had a finger on the pulse of the issue and will explain the impact of recent policy decisions on musculoskeletal care. You'll also get an update straight from Capitol Hill on what Congress is doing to make sure that the law that was passed in 2020 is enacted correctly and protects patients from these billing disputes. So please enjoy the episode, and thanks to the Pfizer Lilly Alliance for helping make the AAOS Advocacy Podcast possible. I'd like to welcome and introduce Dr. Adam Bruggeman to the podcast. Dr. Bruggeman is a spine surgeon in San Antonio, Texas. He is a member of the Healthcare Systems Committee. They do a tremendous amount of heavy lift for the AOS, looking into a lot of these intricate issues. And Adam has put a lot of effort and thought into surprise billing. So welcome, Adam. Thank you. I appreciate it. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. And thank you for all the effort and the work that you've done on behalf of the Academy and the Association for this and for our fellows. Can you explain to us what is the surprise billing thing all about and where are we in the process of this surprise billing legislation and rulemaking? It's a great question. I think it's best to define those terms. Balanced billing, the best way to discuss it is creating a scenario. So if you go to the emergency room tomorrow and you're at a local hospital, happens to be in network with your insurance provider. Unfortunately, sometimes the providers who practice there, including the emergency medicine doctors or surgeons, might not be in your network. And balance billing says that if you go to that emergency room and the doctor is out of network, the care you receive may be paid a certain amount based on what the insurance company provides and they believe might be fair as an initial payment. The provider has the right because they do not have a contract to bill the patient for the difference between what they charge and what your insurance company paid. And that's the balance that is being billed, hence the name balance billing. Sometimes we use the term surprise billing because the patients are surprised to receive either the bill itself, they weren't expecting a bill, say, from an anesthesiologist or a pathologist who they maybe don't remember meeting or didn't expect to get a bill from them, or they were surprised at the amount. So that's how the term surprise billing came out. Where are we in the current process of this? The law was passed, so doesn't that take care of it? I think we all get excited about the bill being passed and ending up on the president's desk and he signs it and that must be it. But there's so much more to take it from a bill to actually being implemented. Usually lawmakers give a really big overview. We'll call it the 30,000 foot overview. And the regulators then get down to the ground level and make sure that it's enacted. In this case, the regulatory agency is Health and Human Services, who oversees a lot of different things, including our Medicare provisions. But Health and Human Services then has to create rules and try to understand what the lawmakers were saying as they implement it, because they can't write 
laws. They were not elected by us as officials. They have to follow the intent of those who wrote the law. And that's really where the rubber meets the road. We'll get right back to our conversation with Dr. Adam Bruggeman. But first, let's hear about the issue from Congress. We're joined by Stephen Peterson, who was the senior legislative assistant for the United States Representative Tom Swasey from New York. Now that regulations are coming out of the agencies to implement the law banning surprise billing, Congressman Swasey and his colleagues are making sure that those rules follow the congressional intent. We appreciate Mr. Peterson joining us. Mr. Peterson, thank you very much, sir. Thank you for having me on, Doug. There has been bipartisan, widespread support to do something to address surprise medical billing. But as with many areas of the uh, healthcare system, it's not as simple as it seems because you don't want to have unintended consequences that would lead to bad effects on patient access, quality of care, etc. Ultimately, the No Surprises Act was signed into law last December. In our view, the No Surprises Act not only protected patients from surprise medical bills, it also included a number of other robust patient protections. Congress drafted this legislation specifically to prevent insurance companies from being in the driver's seat and being able to drastically narrow their networks by cutting reimbursement rates. What do you think was the portion of the bill that wasn't necessarily enacted by CMS as y'all intended it to be? The primary area of contention was the process by which a payment amount would be decided should there be a disagreement between the provider and the insurer. Our ultimate goal was to incentivize both parties to act in good faith and to try to come to some sort of agreement. Each party, if they're unable to come to an agreement in the open negotiation period, they each give an offer, and it is up to the independent dispute resolution IDR entity to decide which offer is more valid and to choose one. In addition, the loser of the dispute resolution process has to pay for the expenses of both sides. So all of that was done in order to incentivize both parties to act reasonably. Additionally, we created a robust open negotiation period that exists prior to even getting to the dispute resolution process. So everything that we did in crafting this law was intended to incentivize good faith, promote balance, and just come to what we view as a common sense solution. The last thing we wanted to do was to set up a system that put big insurance companies, for example, in the driver's seat and allowed them to have disproportionate control of the matter, which could lead to all sorts of unintended consequences. So that is what we're trying to get implemented when it comes to rulemaking process. The most important interim rule that was released by the agencies on September 30th, in our view, is not entirely consistent with the law that Congress passed last December. The Interim rule was put into the Federal Register on October 7th officially. There's now a 60-day comment period, and then ultimately the rule is scheduled to be implemented right after the start of the new year. And so what we're trying to do right now is make the agencies aware of what we see as the inconsistencies between what's been released so far and Congress's intent. How are y'all sending your message? Every congressional office is acutely aware of this issue. 
in June prior to the release of the interim final rule in September. A group of almost 100 members led by Congressman Swazi and Congressman Brad Wenstrup from Ohio signed on to a letter to the three agencies. And when we're in the process of getting another large group of bipartisan members to send a similar letter now, we're in crunch time in terms of making our case. We need to make revisions in order to line the rule up more with the law that Congress passed. What can Academy members and their patients do to help support these efforts? The Academy is wonderful when it comes to getting in touch with congressional offices. They've done an excellent job of getting information to congressional offices, urging members of Congress to sign on to our letter, because the more members of Congress you have, the more of an impact it's going to have, the more constituents who reach out to their members of Congress and make it clear that this is important to them, the higher likelihood it is that a member of Congress will sign on to the letter. So It's all a matter of communication, and the Academy does a great job of that. Mr. Peterson, thank you very much. We really appreciate your insight and your willingness to talk with us, sir. Thank you very much for having me, Doug. So, Adam, let's get right into why surprise billing is an issue of concern for orthopedic surgeons. In orthopedics, we're on call quite a bit. We take care of a lot of the various patients who come in unexpectedly for urgent or emergent care. Despite our best efforts, there's hundreds of healthcare plans. And uh, as much as we talk about the big five, it's almost impossible for a surgeon to be on every single network and truly be in network with every provider. We needed a fair and equitable process to negotiate a reasonable compensation for our services. I think that's a good summary on this. How do you feel the difference was between the intent of the law and what we actually got as a result of that. We've had several of the various authors, both on the Senate side and on the House side, talk about the importance of looking at every single item that was outlined equally, including the opportunity to bring other items to the table. The implementation side, at least our interim rule, suggests that the focus is going to be on the median in-network rate, which we don't think is the intent for good reason. What were the, some of the other issues, the other things that the law, the way the law was written, actually wanted the arbitrator to look at? They actually left a list of various items, just like we did in Texas and New York did as well with their laws, essentially looking at the experience, the difficulty of the case, the previous contracting status. In other words, the surgeon been in network with many other uh, networks and just happened to be out of network with this one? Is this how their practice is run? Do they run out of network? And that might influence the arbitrator and the independent dispute resolution process. So there are other factors in New York and Texas. We've looked at the median, the 80th percentile of build charges as well as a number. And so there's a variety of thought processes on things that can be looked at to help determine an appropriate amount for physicians to be reimbursed. I've talked with you personally about some of the experience that y'all have had in Texas and our colleagues in Texas are extremely involved on the advocacy front. When did this all roll out in Texas and can you give us a brief overview of what all happened there? I would trace our lineage back to the 2014-2015 New York law that was passed. I think that was really a landmark bill. The goal, and I really want to make sure we clear this up, the goal of all of this is really to get the patients out of the middle. That's our primary goal. We don't want our patients to be caught between a discussion between an insurance company and a provider. And we have to create a scenario in which doctors can feel like they can get paid appropriately. The experience of the New York law allowed us in 2019 to write the Texas bill. 
And we've really tracked along closely with the New York bill. It's been a fair and equitable process. All the parties involved from the insurance companies to the patients, to the regulators, to the physicians have all been very happy with the process we have in place here in Texas, as well as in New York. A lot of us in academy leadership are extremely concerned about the implications of this rule writing process that HHS is undergoing, and it could potentially have a cataclysmic effect on the practice of orthopedic surgery and medicine in the U.S. But how do you think this law will actually impact the different types of physicians, those of us who are employed or in independent practice, for instance, those in rural settings versus urban settings? Will it hit us differently? I think the basic concern is that the goal is to have the scales tipped evenly on behalf of both providers and insurance companies. And the feeling is very clear that in the average in-network rate would tip this heavily in favor of the insurance companies. So when we talk about how this impacts physicians, it would create a scenario where employed physicians who are largely paid based on the work they do, but not on the revenue they generate, may not see a tremendous impact. Although I tell my employed physician colleagues that their employment and their fair market value is dependent upon how physicians are doing outside the employment market. To the extent that drives changes and drives the conversation in favor of insurance companies, that will drive down their ultimate package for salaries and reimbursement. For independent physicians, though, I think that's where this really is, where the rubber meets the road. Those who are not employed, who do not have the resources of large organizations, will have to spend an inordinate amount of money and time trying to get the reimbursement that they feel that they deserve through the dispute resolution process. I think that's really difficult when you think about small businesses being the backbone of America. And these are small businesses, these physician practices, and to burden them while these very large insurance companies have no issues with going to the dispute resolution process. That's a really difficult thing for us to understand why the process has gone this drought. To your point, especially small practices, taking these to the independent dispute resolution, the IDR, over and over again is going to be extremely taxing on the resources that a small practice has. This is not an easy process thing for us to go through. Yes. And I think the key is when we tie to median in-network rate, theoretically, potentially that physician is not in-network because of a poor in-network rate that they were provided that maybe wasn't consistent with rates they received from other providers or other insurance companies in the area. If they are held to that standard and they feel that is not an appropriate amount and the dispute resolution process is very expensive, many physicians may decide it's just not worth the money and time and effort, particularly these smaller businesses and these independent practices, to actually fight these claims and get reimbursed their appropriate amount. I think that's really unfortunate. If you continue this line of thought, it seems like this, in addition to other things that Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services have been pushing out recently, there seems to be an impetus and a drive toward practice consolidation in that it's going to be harder for small practices to survive, independent doctors to survive the next thing. They're going to be pushed into the mega groups or at a hospital employment or something like that, which has an adverse impact on competition and cost. Can you further explain these relationship between hospital and practice consolidation with these surprise billing laws? I think the cost pressure are going to lead physicians into larger practices, as you said, or agreeing to some sort of employment arrangement. 
And unfortunately, what we value in the United States for our healthcare, our personal doctor, our ability to get in touch with someone and have that doctor maybe come by the house and do a house call or see me in the hospital while I'm there. That all came from the independent practice, from physicians taking ownership in their practice. And that drove this high level of care we have here. And the concern is that consolidations historically in the United States have led to significantly higher costs with a maintenance or decrease in the quality of care. That's really a bad combination. More expensive care that's really not better or more effective. The biggest reason why is because these large groups can typically command a better in-network rate than an independent physician can. And that will drive a much more expensive dollar amount to the patient, whether it's their coinsurance, their deductible, or for their employer who's paying the main premium on behalf of their employee. That's an excellent explanation of how consolidation can adversely affect a lot of what the administration and the government is trying to affect. What do you think the other efforts are toward perhaps narrow networks and other downstream effects of these rules that came off this legislation? As insurance companies see these larger employed groups or larger consolidated groups of physicians, it doesn't require them to have the depth and breadth of contracting with various providers in the community. And that's what we call a narrow network, meaning that your choices are limited as a patient as to which physicians you can go see. The thought process is that improves cost and that ultimately drives that back to the premium dollars that are being paid. But again, the experience and many of the economic analyses have shown that consolidation, which is in part driven by these narrow networks and in part drives these narrow networks, ultimately leads to higher cost of care and lower quality of care. And that's really just not what we want as the academy and as orthopedic surgeons and as patients ourselves. Part of the thing that I've always noticed in this entire legislation and the thought process going through it is there's a lot of confusing terms that have come up on it. For instance, surprise billing. I'm a trauma surgeon. Surprise billing, in many ways, people think of people like me, that you have no choice. You come to the emergency room against your will. You came to my ER. You didn't know I was at a network for you, and you got stuck with that. But that's not really the case, as you've been explaining. This affects patients far more so than the surprise bill they get through emergency care that they don't really have a choice over. The depths of this rule affects really the general delivery of care across the entire country. It's absolutely right. I think if you look at the breadth of this rule, there are rules now for cash paying patient uh, now has fallen underneath this rule. And there are rules now as providers we have to follow for a patient who's elected to just simply pay out of pocket for services. They have been brought into this rule. And surprise billing is really not the surgeon. It's not us. It's not the orthopedic surgeon they see typically. It's a provider they don't see, maybe an anesthesiologist, maybe a pathologist, maybe a radiologist, someone who has limited contact with them has really driven a lot of the conversation. They can also get surprise bills from providers like us or like emergency room providers who may not be in their network. And so the goal is to be more transparent to the patients, which is appropriate. The goal is to help the patients understand and make a good decision. But at the same time, we really need to work and find a way that doesn't penalize the providers in the community in such a way that it causes them to drive towards consolidating these markets or becoming employed or joining these larger groups because they just can't make it. 
And you nicely stated it earlier that the main impetus of this law was to get the patients out of the middle because they're helpless, they're in the crossfire. And many times these folks don't have the understanding of the processes that are accomplished in this. And so they get really run over in the entire process. However, by taking them out of the middle, we've put ourselves in a situation where these downstream effects, the way things that may go, may inadvertently hurt the patients even more unless things change. Absolutely. And again, the goal is to have a fair and equitable process. I strongly encourage anyone to review what Georgetown and some of the other health policy groups have done looking at that New York state law, doing a five-year look back. There was a 35% increase in groups joining networks and leaving the out-of-network setting. That was the goal of the program. There was incredible support from all the various people who have an interest in this. I really think that if done correctly, we can keep the patients out of the middle, provide high quality care, and do it at a reasonable cost. And that's really the goal. HHS is in the final process of taking from the interim final rule to the final rule. And as an association, we are very actively engaging with the administration to try to get this rule written as fair and as equitably as possible. But in the interim, where do we go from here? Now that we're waiting on these regulations to take effect in the short term and in the long term, what do we want these laws to actually do to finally resolve this issue? Number one, we have a pretty good idea of what the final rule will look like. And so practices that need to begin to look at what they need to implement from a disclosure standpoint for if they have any self-pay patients, what they're required to do, what paperwork they need to make sure they have, there are some requirements for posting things on websites and in public view. To the providers out there, make sure that you read the rules and make sure that your office managers or attorneys are ensuring that you're following and compliant. From an advocacy standpoint, we need to continue to talk with our local congressional members and help them understand the importance and how this impacts our practice, how this impacts patient care. And that's really critical. How is it going to impact the delivery of care to ensure that musculoskeletal medicine is delivered in a fair, way that gets the patients the most amount for the dollars that are being spent every day on healthcare. In the long term, I certainly hope that we can continue to evolve the conversation about what we've done in Texas, what's been done in New York, how it hasn't harmed or hurt the healthcare system, how it hasn't increased costs, and how it's created a system that everybody's happy with. And I really feel the process, if done correctly, leads to almost no arbitrations and physicians and insurance companies pick up the phone, call each other, either go and network with each other or come up with an agreement about how much to get paid. That's the ultimate goal. We have had the distinct pleasure of talking with Dr. Adam Bruggeman about the surprise billing law and the regulations that are currently being written for it. His tremendous efforts and work in this area is benefiting all of us within the AAOS and really will help us take better care of our patients. And as he stated earlier, keep our patients out of the center of this issue and protect them like only we can. As an association, we will continue to keep you up to date with what's happening. The Office of Government Relations is working very hard on this issue and is keeping very close eye on what HHS is doing in terms of rule writing and what we could do to influence the process. And lastly, please make sure that you go to aos.org to the Advocacy Action Center. There's a tremendous amount of opportunity for you to engage in the legislative and the regulatory process and help our profession and our patients. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of the AAOS Advocacy Podcast, part of the Bonebeat Orthopedic Podcast channel with production and sound design by Mission Based Media. For more information on this topic and other AAOS efforts to shape the future of musculoskeletal healthcare, please visit aaos.org forward slash the bonebeat advocacy. Mm-hmm.